Hi, I'm Erwin McManus, and this is the Mosaic Podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And if you're one of our regular listeners, we love the fact that you journey with us. And we pray that every single message inspires you and helps you become the person that God created you to be. Every single week, we send a new message across the world. And everything we do here at Mosaic is made available to everyone in the world for absolutely free. The reason we can do that is that we have incredible people who give generously and sacrificially to make this possible. And I want to invite you to join us. If you're already a giver, thank you so much. If this is something you've not yet done, I want to invite you to start doing that now. Go to mosaic.org give and give a one-time gift or even beyond that, become a recurring giver here at Mosaic. And if you're one of those individuals who God has blessed in an amazing way financially, I want to invite you to become one of our partners here at Mosaic. What's really beautiful about Mosaic is that our biggest givers are families who do not live here in Los Angeles, but they are so committed to the message of Jesus going to the world that they support the work here from Los Angeles to the ends of the earth. And so I want to invite you again, go to mosaic.org give, become a part of our support system, become one of our partners. And more than anything else, I want you to listen to the message, allow Jesus to speak to you in a way that will change your life. Mosaic. I just want to take a moment and pause. It's been a pretty heavy couple of weeks. And I don't think there's any way that you could pay attention to social media and not just be drowning in the conversations between Israel and Palestine and Hamas and all that's going on. And it, for me, it's, it's, it's felt incredibly heavy. And you you end up feeling an intense level of responsibility in knowing the right things to say and how to say them and when to say them. And, and I can't tell you how many people send me notes telling me what I should be doing, what I should be saying, and how I should be praying. Because for a lot of people, praying is a political posture. They want you to pray a certain way so that you're making a political statement. And so my prayer political statement is I will never use prayer as a political tool. We're gonna pray for people. And, and so when people say, well, why aren't you praying for this and praying for that and praying for this person and that person? I'm going, because the truth is, there's so many things happening in the world, we never pray for everything we should be praying for. We don't take time and focus on the Islamic massacre in China. We, you focus on Israel and Palestine, now you're, you've forgotten Ukraine. We probably never take time and pray for the people in Venezuela who are oppressed and starving to death. There are things happening all over the world, all the time. And it, it's, it's astonishing to me, the level of political, geopolitical experts on TikTok, <laughs> and who barely look like they're 22, but they have decades of experience and research to back them up. And it's disturbing to me. And, and this morning, I woke up at 4, didn't want to, but I did. And, and eventually, you know, I started researching TikTok. And, and I saw someone post something, and it said, these are the celebrities who are pro-Israel. And then it went, go to hell, go to hell, go to hell, go to hell, to each one of them. And I thought, and then you see some on the other side that even regardless of your positions in the Middle East, 
The moment we use any issue to justify our own hatred for someone else because they disagree with us, we're a part of the problem. And so wherever you stand in all these issues in the world, what I'd like to do is I like to stand together and say we are for each other, we're for humanity. I don't even begin to pretend I understand all the nuances of any conflict in the world. I have opinions and I have thoughts. I save them for other spaces. Here, we just know that every human being who lives on this planet is unconditionally loved by God and that every person matters to God and Jesus has come for them. So we want to pray with that posture for all of humanity. And if it's not politically precise enough for you, that's okay because you just need to get used to a, a space that doesn't try to position people against each other, but tries to find a way to hold us together and keep us in a conversation. There'd be so much less violence if we could actually see each other as human beings. So I just wanna pray, we'll pray for everyone, even everyone I don't mention is included, and, um, and I wanna pray for you, because each one of us face our own battles every day. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. God, um, we are a mess as a species. We do not even have enough time to pray for everything that we desperately need you to intervene in our lives. Yet, God, I'm reminded that the world will always be at war as long as the human heart is at war. And so I pray, we pray, Jesus, that you would win the battle of the human heart that you would end the violence within us so that we could actually experience peace on earth. We pray, Father, that every human being would begin to elevate in their own heart the value of every human being. That the lines that divide us would not be as important as the very things that unite us. And I am grateful, Jesus, that there is not a people group on this planet that you do not love. There's not a nation that does not matter to you. There's not a race or ethnicity or economic condition for which you do not have an ending, unconditional, endless love and affection for. And so we choose to side with you and we pick humanity. We fight for the value of every human being in a world that is broken and I know it breaks your heart. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we just thank God for this day together? So we've been diving through the principles inside of um, my book, MindShift. And we've been highlighting different chapters and different principles, different mental shifts that if you can make from your inner world will transform the way you relate to your external world. Because remember, our baseline principle as we dive through this material is that the internal limitations that shape your mindset are more powerful than any external circumstance you will ever face. And the incredible promise of this 
is that there's no one who can stop you from living your life at an optimal level. There, there's no circumstance or situation that can keep you from living the life that you're created to live. And the greatest challenge in this is that when we do not recognize our own internal limitations, we will project our limitations, our frustrations on other people and other environments, other circumstances. And so we'll spend our lives blaming other people for the lives we never lived. Now, I know there are real obstacles in life and real circumstances that can limit you and real challenges that we face. This is not to disavow that, that you're going to face some huge, huge obstacles and walls and challenges and maybe even opposition in your life. But we give way too much power for what we face outside of us than what we need to face inside of us. So I wanted to jump ahead to chapter 9. Because I wanted to jump to the chapter that more than any other chapter explains the way I see the world and the way I found the world can be best engaged. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to make a statement and I want you to see how quickly it resonates with you. The world is a dangerous place. And if you're going to travel the world, you need to make sure you watch your back. Or, the world is a beautiful place. And if you get to travel the world, even strangers will watch your back. Which one of those reflects your view of reality? Because one of the things that I find so oftentimes with people is that they're really frustrated that they can't find the right kind of people in the world. You know, you can't find a true friend. Anyone ever feel that? Can't find someone who's really loyal. It's hard to find kind people. It's hard to find people you can trust. It's hard to find honest people. And I hear that narrative a lot from people. And then I'll hear another narrative. Man, the world is so full of good people. The world is so full of honest people. The world is so full of kind people. I just meet generous people everywhere. And it's almost as if we're on two different planets. Because there's one person who searches the world and finds one species, and another person who searches the world and finds a completely different species. And sometimes we find in our own lives, we've been both those people. Sometimes it seems we find good people everywhere, and sometimes it seems like we can't find a good person anywhere. But when you begin your life journey, when you begin to realize that you're not just exploring the future, you're not just exploring opportunities, you're not just exploring possibilities, you're exploring relationships, you're actually in a search for people throughout your life. But you will not find what you're searching for. You will not find what you're looking for. You will not find what you want. You will not find what you need. You will find what you are. And one of the most difficult mind shifts to help a person make in life is that if you don't like who you're finding out there, what you need to change is not who you're finding, but who you are. There's this odd mystical dynamic about human beings where if you could just put it in the zone of magnetism or energy or frequencies, it's as if we humans emit frequencies that let people know that we're a common species to them. And we don't even realize we're sending out that frequency. You, you might be one of those people. Have you ever just had one of those days where everyone's mad? 
No matter where you go, you go to, you go to the coffee shop, everybody's mad. You, you go to the store, everyone's mad. You go to work, everyone's mad. You go home, everyone's mad. And at the end of the night, if you have any self-awareness, you realize it was you that was mad the whole day. It wasn't all those people. It wasn't that everyone everywhere was like that. It's that you were like that, and you brought that out of people. Oh. Just a little side note before we dig in. Who you are is what you pull out of people. It becomes the best mirror of who you are. And if you don't like what you're finding in people, then you need to look in the mirror and realize what you are actually seeing is that you don't like who you are. But on the flip side, I'm going to be optimistic. If you're really loving humanity, if you're really enjoying people, if you're finding in people what you've always hoped for, it means there's an incredible positive change that is taking place inside of you because it means you're pulling out of people the best of them. There's this odd dynamic in being human that we actually can't see what we're not. We don't see people for who they are. We see them for who we are. In fact, a lot of the really extensive psychological assessments that I use when I'm working with people actually helps a person understand themselves by how they see the world around them. If you ask a person how they see themselves, it's usually inaccurate. It's odd. We don't see ourselves well. But if you can get a person to talk about other people, and tell you what they think about other people, and tell you what they think about the common patterns of, of human values and virtues and characteristics, that's when you begin to discover who they are. So whenever you're talking about people, and some of you, I, I probably not in this room, but some of you like gossip. Some of you love gossiping about other people, and what you're saying about other people is really what you're telling them about yourself. I started thinking about when did this dynamic first appear in the history of scriptures. And there's this interesting moment in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to dive into a few different places to look at perspective on how we see reality. But in Genesis chapter 4, it's the moment where, well, two brothers, Abel and Cain, had a conflict, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And I imagine everyone here is somewhat familiar with that story. And so Cain gets upset with God, kills his brother, because, well, you can't really kill God, so you kill what he loves. So you kill a human being. And then God steps in in this moment. In Genesis chapter 4, God says this to Cain. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God is actually describing the earth as crying out because it has swallowed the blood of his brother. How the earth must be crying out today. He says, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Well, before we dive into what I think is really critical here, I want you to notice that it's still all about Cain. Everything that he says in response to God is about himself. I will be a restless wanderer. 
This is more punishment than I can bear. You're driving me and I will be hidden. God, you're doing this to me. Cain's perspective was still that he was the victim. Now he's receiving a punishment that he does not deserve. And then he says to God, you're driving me from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer and whoever finds me will kill me. Now some other day I'm going to talk to you about where all those people came from early in the Bible when there's only supposed to be Abel and Cain. But there are all these other cities and that's going to be a great conversation. But I want you to see Cain's perspective on humanity. Wherever I go, people will want to kill me. It's funny when we read the Bible, we just assume the people who say something are right. But Cain wasn't right. He wasn't right when he killed his brother. And he wasn't right when he perceived how people would respond to him. When Cain came to this conclusion, whoever finds me will kill me, he's actually telling you who he is. He perceives all of humanity through the vantage point of who he is because you do not find what you want, you do not find what you need, you do not find what you seek, you find who you are. So Cain knew wherever he went, he was going to find someone who would kill him. Why? Because if you showed up, Cain would kill you. So he projects on everyone else what he would do. By the way, that's the way we actually process what other people will do. If you are always assuming negative intention from other people, it's because you have negative intention. If you are always assuming that people are going to take advantage of you, it's because you're postured to take advantage of people. And worst case scenario, if you think everyone's going to kill you, it's because you have violence in your heart. He was wrong. In fact, people all over the world wouldn't even know who Cain was. They wouldn't even know what Cain did. He was the center of the universe to him. Everywhere he went, someone's going to kill him. Except the problem is that the only person so far in human history who was like that was him. He was the only killer among us. But he thought everyone was one. This is the way we end up relating to the world. We find who we are, and we actually pull out of other people who we are. That's why sometimes you can find yourself in a situation going, what's going on? I feel like the worst of me is about to come out. Have you ever been in a relationship where you were a pretty good human being except in that relationship? Like, and you just kept going back to it all the time? It's because they pull a darkness out of you that you want permission to live out. And so in that relationship, they actually pull out the worst in you, but you actually want that worst in you. So you stay in the relationship, not because you're hoping you can change, but it's because it gives you an environment where you can be that person. Be careful when someone pulls the worst out of you, and be careful when you pull the worst out of others. How do you see people? What do you think you'll find when you travel the world? I, this week, I've been thinking about so many of the places I've gotten to travel across the world. I think I've been to over 70 countries, and it's been a really interesting journey. But years ago, I, I traveled the Middle East. I went to Egypt and Pakistan and um, Lebanon and Syria and Turkey, and, and it was an extraordinary experience. And when we went to Syria, we went to Lebanon and snuck across into Syria and went to Damascus. And at that time, it had the highest concentration of trained assassins in the world. 
And, and the different experiences were different, by the way. I, I remember flying into Pakistan, and on the plane, everyone started praying in Arabic at the same time, minus me, since I didn't speak Arabic. And, and it, was a, it was kind of a strange feeling to have everyone on the plane just start praying at the same time, out loud. And then right before we landed, and I was there with a coworker who also spoke English, the only announcement in English in the flight, they came on and said, we need to inform you that if you proselytize in the nation of Pakistan, it is punishable as a capital offense. And I remember looking at my coworker saying, I think we're the only two people who speak English on this entire flight. So they must be talking to me. They're letting me know that if I talk about Jesus in Pakistan, I have, they have the right to imprison me or kill me. It was a very interesting wake-up call. But when I landed and walked through Islamabad and traveled through the country, I met amazing people. Everyone was kind. Everyone was gracious. I had amazing meals. Oh, my. And I never found anyone who had anything but kindness and compassion and affection. It was strange how when you bring love, you find love. When you bring compassion, you find compassion. And I, I remember going to Syria, and that was a little tricky. I had my Salvadorian passport, and, and at that time, when, and whenever I would travel into highly violent places, I would rarely start with English. I just discovered it was a better thing to do. And so I, I'm, I'm in Syria, and I'm in the market, and I'm negotiating. I'm negotiating for a leather jacket. And it was kind of awesome, and I was instructed by my guide, don't give in. And I go, what do you mean? When they give you a price, don't accept it. They go, well, what about if I just want to go ahead and pay for it since I have more money than they do? And No, it will be an insult. You need to negotiate, and you need to negotiate hard, and then you need to make sure they win because they understand themselves to be the best negotiators in the world, and so if you don't fight, they'll consider you to be weak and to be insulting their character. And so I would go in and we'd start negotiating and fighting and arguing. And it was, no, too much, no, too little. And going back and forth, back and forth. And the guy whispers, walk away, walk away. Like, I'm not built like that. I'm like, here, have it all, take everything. And he's like, walk away. So I'm going, no, no, no. I like the jacket, but I'm sure there's a better one down the way. And I just started walking away. And he chases me down. He goes, for you. Because, because I like you. Because I like you. I'm going to give you a very, very special deal. But don't tell anyone else, I go broke. And so I, we go back, and I leave with a leather jacket I paid three times too much for. And I remember these guys rushed at me. And it could have been interpreted so differently. But they ran at me, and when they came up, right, they go, are you an American? And I said, perdón, no entiendo. <laughs> I said, no, no, no. Do you speak English? I said, oh, I do speak English. I said, we love Americans. I said, oh, all my friends, they're all American. And, uh, I said, will you come to our home? We'll cook you dinner. We'll practice our English. We love American TV. Everybody loves friends. <laughs> and we just couldn't walk 10 feet without having people inviting us into their home. 
I realized, oh, I, I think humans actually like humans. It's, it's governments that don't like governments. It's nations that don't seem to get along with nations. But I think humans, we find each other along the way because you find who you are. And if you see the good in people, it's amazing how the good in them emerges. And sometimes you don't just find who you are, they find who you are in the best possible way. Because when you bring kindness, they find their kindness. When you bring trust, they find their trust. When you bring compassion, they find their compassion. But, but I, I want to take a moment, and I know this is a little odd, I do have a, a psychology background, and, and I started thinking about how this perspective of who we are shapes how we see other people. And I thought, you know, where did Cain get this perspective? Was there, was there an example of that before then? And I realized there was. And so I want to take a few minutes and talk to you about the psychology of a snake. Because there's this moment in Genesis chapter 3, right before Genesis chapter 4 with Abel and Cain, you have the conversation with Eve and the snake. That's an odd conversation. It, but I understand why, because she only had Adam, and men really don't like to talk. Just, she probably needed someone to have a conversation with, someone who could understand her, you know, and because, uh, I mean, what leads a woman to have a conversation with a snake, <laughs> except <laughs> we have to work harder, men, and, and, and so there's, there's something going on here, and, and God makes it really clear, you're in paradise, you can eat from any tree you want, but there are two significant trees, a tree of life, which is endless abundance of experience and joy, and then you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from this one because it'll ruin you. It'll lead to death. So now the snake comes and has a conversation with Eve at first. And this is what the snake says to Eve. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we're just going to look at that just for a moment from a psychological perspective. First of all, I want you to realize that when... The snake says to her, and we know she's not really having a conversation with the snake, right? That she's actually having a conversation with Lucifer. And Lucifer is having a conversation with Eve about God's intention. And he says to her, if you eat from this fruit, see, what God is not telling you is that if you eat from this fruit, you will become like God. But what Eve and Adam forgot is that they were already like God. In fact, we're told at least twice, that, that God created man, speaking of male and female, in his image and in his likeness. So we would never be more like God than in that moment when they were exactly like God. So the serpent actually convinced them that their identity was lost, that they were not like God. So they had a desire to be like God because they were designed to be like God. But so the serpent shifts the narrative and says, You've been lied to. There's something about God that you should want that he didn't give you. And then he says, this is what it is. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's the curious thing. That was not like God at all. God does not know good and evil. God only knows good. Because he is good. It's Lucifer who knows good and evil. See, Lucifer is the angel of light. 
and he knew good. But when he severed his relationship with God, he severed his relationship with the light and became darkness. And I know people say, well, wait a minute. If God created everything, then he created evil. And that's as limited a thinking as not understanding that silence isn't something that's real. It's the absence of sound. You don't create silence. You have the absence of sound, and so you have silence. You don't create darkness. It's the absence of light. And so what evil is is the absence of God. And the moment Lucifer separated himself from the source of all that is good, of all that is love, of all that is light, now he was the full manifestation of knowing good and evil, but he didn't know good anymore. He remembered good and experienced evil. And this was the gift he was giving humanity. See, I think many of us remember good, but experience evil. Isn't that the best description of the human story? It's as if we remember good. We know we're supposed to be more, don't we? We know, we know that the human story should never, ever have a single sentence that has rape or violence or murder or injustice or war or genocide. Those words should never be a part of the human story. And yet it becomes the human experience. But we know somehow, we remember that we are supposed to be more. We remember that we are supposed to be a reflection of God, of all that is good and beautiful and true. And when we live beneath that, we know we're living beneath our humanity. But look at the perspective of the snake. Here's the psychology of the snake. See, the reason the serpent thought that God knew good and evil is because he was projecting on God who he was. But how could the most powerful being not know evil? You cannot have unlimited power and not know evil. In fact, we've said it for generations. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. But it doesn't. Absolute power reveals absolutely. And what the serpent couldn't understand about God is that God knew good and had no interest in knowing evil. And he wanted us to be a reflection of the good and had no interest in us being a reflection of evil. And the entire story of God is to restore that goodness in us so that we could be free from the destructive power of the absence of good, the absence of God, the absence of love. You need to be careful when a person makes you the worst version of yourself. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. But I want you to see the psychology of the snake somehow transferred into our own perspective. And I'm just going to pick two examples. One in Matthew 25. This is where Jesus tells a parable about a master who gives his servants bags of gold, talents. You know the story. One, he gives five bags of talents. One, he gives two bags of gold. Another one, he gives one bag. And then he leaves. And he tells them to be good stewards of it. He doesn't even give them like any strategy. I mean, if someone's going to leave me with like five bags of gold, you know, I, I want a strategy. Should I invest in Tesla? You know, Walmart? Like what? 
You know, God, what, what, do you want me to high risk, high reward? Low risk, low reward, right? I need, I need an investment banker God saying, this is what you should do while I'm gone. But he doesn't because God gives you free will. So the story is an open story. He gives you talent and then says, be responsible with it. So the one who had five talents multiplied it to ten. The one that had two talents multiplied it to five. And then the third guy took the one talent and buried it. And received nothing for it. He put it in Bank of America. <laughs> and, and then some time passes by. The master comes back and he evaluates what they've done. The one who grew it from five to ten, he says, well done. The one who grew it from two to five says, well done. Same reward. Same joy. Then the one who had the one, he buried it. And before he could even evaluate it, the guy tells him why I buried the talent. Listen to this. Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. I want you to see what limited his life. How he saw the master shaped how he lived his life. He doesn't even say, I'm not a good investor. I was a coward. I was afraid. I didn't know what to do with the one. I should have gone to the guy who had five. He clearly knew what to do growing at the 10. But I didn't even bother to talk to my two friends to see if they could help me do better. I just buried it because I knew you were an evil man. I knew you were a hard man. And then he says to him, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. But that was not true about the master. He saw the master through who he was. If I was in charge, if I had power, I would take what's not mine and I would abuse others for my benefit. I would be a hard man. So he projected that on his master. The other two were clearly unafraid of the master's response. How you see God will define how you live your life because it will shape how you see you. But the other side is also true. How you see God is actually how you see yourself. And if you think God is hard and cruel and angry and is going to punish you for every mistake you've ever made, I guarantee you that's the way you treat other people. Because you think that is the principle of life. And when you see God as a God of mercy and compassion, when you see God as a God who loves you and gives you so much grace and so much room to grow and fail, that's the way you treat other people. And when you have a false perspective of God, you have a false perspective of others, and you end up with a false perspective of yourself. And you blame everyone else on your life. You blame everyone else for your failures. You blame everyone else for your underachieving. You blame everyone else for your fear. You blame everyone else because you can't look in the mirror and realize it was never about the master. It was always about you. I want you to see one other example. John 12, beginning of verse 3. This is Jesus at that dinner. I think he's at a Michelin 
And uh, he's at the house of the Pharisees, having this great meal. And this prostitute named Mary breaks into the party. She's not invited. And you know the story. She takes a jar of perfume that's worth about a year's salary. And, you know, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, starts washing Jesus' feet with her hair. Here's where the story picks up. It says, then Mary took a, about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective, objected, why hasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? I'm going to read that again. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. He did not say this. I love that John adds this. He wants to make sure we understand. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. John, just straight up. As the keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So isn't it interesting that the person who seemed so concerned about the poor was the greediest person in the room? Let me tell you, this is still true today. Judas saw her actions through his ethics. He saw her actions through his values. He saw in her who he was. Her act was an act of beautiful worship, of extravagant affection and love for Jesus. Judas saw it as a waste of money because he wasted money. He saw it as an opportunity lost because he was a person who would steal every opportunity. Remember, Judas is the one who Jesus put in charge of the money. And he kept stealing it. And then near the end of Jesus' life, he took money to betray Jesus. Judas always had a very dark and distorted relationship to money. So he could never believe anyone would actually be generous. Let me just... Bring this home just for a minute. I always meet people who always say, you know, the reason I don't go to church is the church is always talking about money. Actually, the reality is we talk about a lot of things. But what you hear is what you care about. In fact, I, I was at this fundraiser for a nonprofit. It was at really, really nice. It was at the Chateau, Vermont. Really nice. I have to have some wealth to be there. And we're having this fundraiser. I was, I was just going. And this woman comes up to me. And she goes, I know you. You're from Mosaic. I go, yeah, yes, I am. She goes, yeah, I went one time. Yeah, you, you said something about, because back then we did all the parking for free. I don't even know what we do now. And, uh, and, and she said, you said, hey, all the parking is for free. Cost five bucks at the very least, you know, when you give. At least try to give the five bucks to at least come out zero. I think I said it just sort of off the cuff. And, I, and she goes, I remember you saying that. And I said, do you remember anything else? <laughs> she said, no, that's the only thing I can remember. And I knew the only thing that mattered to her was her money. Because I can tell you a secret. Even now, we have two campuses here in L.A., Hollywood and South Pasadena. Overwhelmingly, South Pasadena gives about 80% of the money that actually makes Mosaic run. We here, we give like 20%. Overwhelmingly, Hollywood has more questions about whether you should give to a church 
Because the less you give, the less you trust. And the more you trust, actually the more you give. And there's an, an interesting relationship. People who believe in high taxes are the least generous people in the world. And that's why they believe in high taxes, because they don't believe anyone would be generous because they're not generous. So the government better take their money because they'll never willingly give it. And by the way, people who are highly generous actually believe in low taxes because they actually are generous, so they believe that really a lot of good can be done with their money. And I'm not even making a political position here. I'm going to ask you a question about your own life. Do you expect someone else to pay for all the things that you need and want in life? Or are you a source of generosity? Are you the person who breaks the jar of perfume? Or are you the person accusing those people of wasting money? Because what you're really discovering is who you are. You know, one of the reasons it's easy for me to believe that we should give is that Kim and I give an immense amount of money. Our family as a whole gives an immense amount of money to Mosaic because we actually love to give and to serve and to invest in other people. And the most powerful thing that could ever happen in your life is a change of perspective about humanity. When you believe people are worth the investment, you invest. When you believe that others will also step up, you step up. The moment you actually believe others can be trustworthy, by the way, that's when you will actually become trustworthy. See, the reason we don't trust people is we're not trustworthy. The reason we're not sure if people will show up for us is we don't show up for people. The reason we can't find good friends in the world is that we're not the good friend. You need to become what you are desperately searching for in the world. Judas accused her, but it actually revealed him. For probably 30 years, I've told Kim, I'm a very cynical person when it comes to public speakers, even though I am one. It's a, it's a crazy thing. I, I, don't, I don't oftentimes feel, oh, I, I just trust that person. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. Let me tell you why. Whenever someone's on a platform and they're always judging you or condemning you about some particular issue in your life, it's always their hidden shadow. And they're condemning you because they hate themselves. And so you, you need to pay attention. Because what happens is that we begin to see the world through who we are. Years ago, Kim said to me, could you stop telling people there's a hero inside of them waiting to be awakened? Like she goes, I'm just so done with that. I go, I can't. Because I live with this deep sense of angst that my life will never count. That I'll never live up to being who I'm created to live. That there's a hero inside of me that I have not found the courage to awaken. And so I'm always awakening in you what I'm afraid is asleep in me. Because you see the world through who you are. So I can't forget. See, I can't forget that I felt like I was nothing. I can't forget that I felt so insignificant that I... I used to live in fear that I would live and die and no one would even know that, I, that, that my life was insignificant. I, I, I cannot forget what it was like to not even believe in God and to think I was a speck of dust in the backdrop of this massive universe and that everything was meaningless. See, I, I'll never forget the, the emptiness that would drown me every day of my life. 
And so I'm pretty open about it. I'm here very specifically because I see you through who I am. And I think there's some of you here that don't know how much you matter. You just don't know how much is in you. You don't know how much good you could do in the world if you could just believe in the uniqueness of your existence that you matter. But if you think that they break the perfume because they're greedy, you're just greedy. If you think people serve because they're trying to make the world better, then I think what it is that you're a servant. Now I would just encourage you to try to see, oh, well, I'm just stopping myself right there. What about Jesus? I mean, you can't be Jesus. Jesus had to be disappointed when he walked among us, right? I mean, I can understand why I could see like awesome in you because I'm so, so short of awesome that I could just see awesome in you. But Jesus, like how could he look at us and think anything except for the negative, right? I mean, Jesus sees right into us. All he's going to see is all the brokenness. All he's going to see is, is, is all the darkness. All Jesus is going to see is all of our sin, all of our shortcomings. And yet in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus sees. In verses 1 and 2 it says, now, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So just backdrop, thousands and thousands of people gathered around Jesus. And they were not the wealthy. They were not the educated. They were not the celebrities. They had no fame, no power, no position. These were the multitudes of the, the poor and the uneducated and the outsiders, the outcasts, the, the ones that the people of Israel themselves did not see any value in them, their own people. And certainly this is Jesus' moment. He could say, look at you! You underachieving ingrates! Never living up to your potential! Why do you keep messing up? Your mom was right. You were never going to accomplish anything. I'm oh, sorry, that was personal. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, you know what Jesus says to them? Verse 13. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So I need you to believe again that you are the salt of the earth. Because someone convinced you you were not. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, which is the way people are treating you. He looked at this multitude and he said, you, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. They're trying to hide you, but God's not trying to hide you. Neither do people build a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Can you imagine thousands upon thousands of people who have never been told they mattered? Who have always been told that they were insignificant? Having Jesus the Messiah sit on a mountain and look at them and see in them such extraordinary potential and value. If you could just hear the words of Jesus echoing through history, looking at you and saying, you are the salt of the earth. Don't waste it. Know your value. Know your worth. You, you are the light. You're the light 
of the world. If anyone could have just said, I am the light of the world, it's Jesus, because he is the light of the world. But instead of pointing to himself and saying, I'm the light of the world, he looked at them and said, you are the light of the world. You know why? Because you find who you are. And Jesus is the salt that transforms human history. He is the light that brings hope and meaning into our darkness. And he can't help but see it in you. It's everywhere. It's overwhelming. It's astonishing how much beauty there is in you. How much potential, how much capacity, how much salt, how much light is in you. Every solution for every human problem is in you. And what a desperate, hopeless world is searching for, it's crazy, is in you. And I just think that we, we need to be the kind of people that see the best in people. Because we choose to become the best version of ourselves. It's a big world with billions of people here. And they're waiting to be found by someone who can look at them and say, wow, you're amazing. I see something so unique and extraordinary in you. Be who you long to find. And you will find what you hoped and you were looking for. Would you just bow your head to me just for a moment and just close your eyes? 2,000 years ago, God stepped into human history in the person of Jesus. And when he looked at you, he fell in love again and again and again. He could have seen the worst of us, and he did. But he refused to leave us there. He sees the best in you. The you that has yet to come to life. The you that is waiting to be born when you invite him into your life and he makes you new. If you're here in this moment and you're ready to become the person God sees, not the person other people see or not even the person you see. But if you're ready to become the person only God can see in you. I want to invite you to cross the line of faith and then to invite Jesus into your life. It's just a simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. It's not magical. It's an invitation to God to change your life. Right now, I just pray. Tell him, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. If this is your prayer, that today is the day you cross the line of faith. Today is the day where God makes you new from the inside out. Today is the day you can look in the mirror and go, I am becoming the person I was always created to be. If you pray that prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. I want you right now just to raise your hand, and I want to pray for you. Beautiful, all around the room. Anyone else right now? Jesus, I give you my life right now. Anyone else? Beautiful. Ah, wonderful. 
beautiful. Father, I thank you for each person that in this moment has crossed the line of faith and has opened up their hearts to you, who've whispered this simple prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. And, and God, I pray that this is the beginning of a lifelong conversation with you, that today would be the marker of a new beginning, of a new future, of a new us. And God, I, I thank you that you also find what you're looking for and you find in us the image of God. You find in us unlimited potential. You find in us the potential for so much good. It would blow our minds. Thank you that you never gave up on us. I pray, God, that you would put such strength and courage into each person that they would never give up on you. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we just thank God for those who responded to him today? So good. So good. I, I've had friends in my past tell me, Erwin, uh, you're too trusting. You need to be more cynical. I would rather trust people and be disappointed than trust no one and be alone. And I just want to challenge you this week to stop waiting for other people to be what you need. This week, you be what other people need. And by the way, just a little note, um, I did a book signing at the Grove this past week. It was a really a wonderful time. But next week, I'm going to do spontaneously, even though I'm giving you a week's notice. Um, if you bring your copy of MindShift, we'll set something up outside. I'll take a little while. If you want me to, to you know, sign your book, even though it doesn't make the book worth more, probably devalues it because now somebody wrote in it but you know but if you want to do that um i'll sit up next week and i'll just do a little book signing and all right god bless love you guys i want to thank you so much for joining us today in the mosaic podcast as god has spoken into your life one of the things that jesus teaches us is that when we've been invested in we need to also become investors and i want to encourage you right now if Mosaic is one of the platforms from which you grow spiritually, you connect more deeply to God, and your faith with Jesus becomes more real, I want to encourage you right now to go to mosaic.org and become one of our givers. Give a one-time gift, become a recurring giver, become a part of what God's doing across the world. Mosaic isn't just a church in Los Angeles. Mosaic is all of us working together.